Today we're going to continue our study through the book of Revelation. We're getting into chapter 7, and you'll see chapter 7 actually is not a terribly long chapter, but it gives an answer to a question that we are left hanging with at the end of chapter 6. Now, briefly in review, of course, in chapter 1, we saw a vision of John, write what you have seen. What is that? a vision of the glorified Christ, not as the suffering servant, this time as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, uh, the all-powerful, almighty uh, Messiah. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we see John writing about the things which are. As we look at those seven churches, I think we're comfortable, at least I'm comfortable with that as a prophetic picture of the church age. Those were seven literal churches with literal issues, accomplishments and failures or weaknesses, but also those seven churches in that order also is representative of the entirety of the church age, which we find ourselves at the tail end of now. After these things, metatauta in the Greek, we see that is the very word that's used in chapter 4, verse 1. And we see references that sound very much like Paul's description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and also in 1 Corinthians 15. I believe we see John caught up into God's throne room, which is what we see in chapters 4 and 5. And of course, to understand what's going on in chapters 4 and 5, you have to have a great familiarity with the Old Testament. And of course, we see a fulfillment of a prophecy that's given to us in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and receives for himself, as we can see in this verse right here, verse 13 and 14, Daniel 7, there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, not just the Jews, all nations' language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And then as we get a little further and we take a pause in our study of Revelation, we will see a declaration made by an angel that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Of course, we looked at the document that was in the right hand of the Father, and it was a legal document with seven seals. It was an important document. And then cross-referencing, looking at Jeremiah 32, and then some other historical notes, we think that this is, without question, a legal deed to property that rightly belongs to the Messiah, but right now is under the influence of the God of this world, the prince and power of this age, uh, the prince and power of the air, uh, the God of this age. Of course, we remember when Jesus was being tested uh, by Satan, one of the tests was, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this. Well, Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't say, uh-uh, Satan, because it doesn't, you, you don't have any control over it. Well, at this point in time, Adam lost and Satan has control. But our near kinsman redeemer, who is God who became flesh, is not only capable of redeeming us, but he's also capable of redeeming his creation, which is what we are going to see uh, ushering in the millennial reign of Christ. So chapters 6 through 19, which is where we are right now, we just concluded chapter 6 through chapter 19, with the exception of some parenthetical inserts or color commentary, which we'll reference again here in just a moment, these are the details of what takes place from the beginning of that that peace treaty that's uh, uh, carried out by the Antichrist and Israel until Armageddon, that seven-year period 
that's called in the Old Testament the great and terrible day of the Lord. Then in chapter 20, we'll see the millennium. We'll see the great white throne judgment. Then in chapter 21 and 22, we see the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Now in chapter 6, we were introduced to what are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we've already covered, but it's important, uh, as I've said, that the Bible is the best commentary there is on the Bible. And if you're going to find out what these references are in Revelation, you have to go back and find their source in the Old Testament. We can go back to Zechariah in two different places. And we find these patrols being sent out to planet Earth from God's throne to take inventory on what's going on on the planet. And with what we see in Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 7, these horsemen are uh, uh, dispatched to, uh, again, give a report on what what the state of the world is, as if God doesn't already know it, but it's symbolic. But uh, the Gentile world is tickled as it can be that Israel doesn't exist. And quite frankly, if the Gentile world, as we are seeing with these protests against Israel around the world, we can see by the end of these seven years at the Battle of Armageddon, the entire world will have come together in one last effort of anti-Semitism trying to wipe the Jews off the face of the planet. You look at references in Ezekiel, and it's logical to conclude that of the Jews that live outside the promised land, nine-tenths will be destroyed during the tribulation period. As you look in Zechariah 13, of those Jews that live in the promised land, three, th- uh, uh, two-thirds will be wiped out uh, during the tribulation period. So this is going to be, as Jesus said, a time of tribulation such as the world has never seen. But the world loves the fact that Israel is, is, is uh, not in charge. And these messengers are dispatched in order to implement God's judgment and to appease God's anger. Now, what we've seen in Revelation 6, we see a picture of the Antichrist, this one who will come forth conquering through peace. We see this white horse wearing victor's laurels, a Stephanos crown, and he conquers through peace. He has a a bow but no arrows quickly followed after the promise of peace and, I believe, disarming of the majority of humanity, that will be followed by the absence of peace, which is, I think, more civil war rather than national war. And as we have studied communism, we recognize that every time that there is an overthrow and a communist government comes to power, uh, the first thing they do is disarm the populace so they can rule the populace. And then they wind up killing all the troublemakers or those that can't be made uh, beneficial for the collective at that point in time. Then we see the black horse with famine and slavery and want and having to measure out food and water daily, followed by the pale chlorine green horse of death. And then we see these martyrs from the tribulation underneath the, the altar in heaven, a sign of holiness is what that is, as the blood of the sacrifices were tossed at the base of the altar, and, and the altar was considered holy ground. Well, these, that are their souls are uh, underneath the altar that is assembled. They are, in fact, uh, part of the resurrection of the just. And then we see immediately after that natural and supernatural catastrophes poured out on the planet that are also referenced in other passages of the Old Testament uh, that, that coincide with the great and terrible day of the Lord. And you see that 
earth dwellers at the end of chapter 6, verse 19, hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. Let's look at those verses just as we get started. Uh, Verses 12 uh, through the end of the chapter, And I beheld, and lo, he opened a sixth seal. This is the Messiah, the kinsman redeemer, who is qualified to open the seals because he could fulfill the obligation and requirements. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. Again, I think it's interesting that that physicists now talk about the fabric of space. And it's interesting that such terminology as stretched out and rolled up are used in Scripture when referencing space itself. I think that's another indication of God knowing a a long time before man ever figured it out. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men. In fact, every bondman and every free man. Basically, when you just went to the end there, every bondman and every free man, that covers everybody hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now notice verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? That is a direct quote from Joel chapter 2 verse 11, which is dealing with the great and terrible day of the Lord. The seven years of tribulation that leads into the millennial reign, the thousand-year millennial reign. Notice here in Joel 2, the, the similarity of the phrase. In fact, it's, it is a quote. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, and the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter His voice before His army, for His camp is very great, for He is strong that executeth His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? That is... For the great day of His wrath has come. Who shall be able to stand? Same words. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can stand? Now, you are going to see as we go through parenthetical inserts. And I describe it much like you'll see this afternoon if you happen to watch uh, the football game this afternoon. You have a color commentator and you have a play-by-play voice. The play-by-play voice tells you the facts as they happen. In fact, a good play-by-play radio commentator can describe to you and you can see what's happening even though you can't see what's happening. Then after the, the details are given, generally in a broadcast, the play-by-play commentator will stop or pause as the players are getting up off the pile and getting back in the huddle and getting ready to call the next play and whatever. At that point, the color commentator, the expert, that used to play the game or used to coach the game will come in and add some details about what you've just seen that give greater understanding to what you've just seen and why you've just seen it. You know, uh, sometimes it may be uh, the, the play-by-play guy is, uh, and Aikman drops back to pass, finds a receiver right open, throws the ball, it's complete touchdown, okay? The, the celebration for a moment, then the color commentator will say, if you remember in the first quarter, They tried to establish the running game. And they got the linebackers to respect the run. Then, right there, they called a play-action pass, and Aikman bootlegged out and found a receiver open deep downfield. So that's the color commentary. Adding color to the details that you've just seen. Now, it's not a second depiction, but it's color. 
You know, what's funny is there are atheists out there that try to mock Christians, and one of their arguments is, which, uh, which story of creation do you believe in? That that's given in Genesis 1 or that that's given in Genesis 2? As if we were making this up, we would be so stupid that we'd have two creation accounts back-to-back that conflicted. Well, there's not two creation accounts. Genesis 1 gives you the play-by-play. Genesis 2 goes back and gives you color commentary on the play-by-play. So, as we go through Revelation, you will see these uh, parenthetical inserts. The play-by-play pauses for a moment, and we have color as to what we are seeing, why we are seeing it, what's preceded, what we can expect to happen. And there are three significant parenthetical inserts, and they're all in the same place. Just before the seven trumpets, uh, or between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, where the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, we see this parenthetical insert of chapter 7. In between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, we will see a parenthetical insert that actually lasts for five chapters, color overview of all the seven years. Then in chap- once we get down to the bowls of wrath, between the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl, we see another brief parenthetical insert. Now, let's, let's reestablish something that I think will give some added clarity as to why these 144,000 are so important. So let me give you some bloviation and a parenthetical insert on the lesson. All right, a couple of hundred years after the flood, man had gotten back in the same condition, spiritually bankrupt. The world was an evil, wicked place. But this time, instead of destroying the planet, God reached into the headquarters of paganism, Ur of the Chaldees, where the worship of the moon god was predominant, and called out Abram and said, Abram, I want you to leave your father's home and your father's religion and all of this, and I want you to follow me. I am the Lord thy God, and I will lead you into a land, and I'm going to bless you in it, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, and through you all the world will be blessed. Those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. So Abram heard the call and heeded it. About two decades later, we see Abraham now in the promised land, but he still is childless. So at this time, he asked God, God, it appears that you may be needing my help. How about if I adopt my chief steward, my chief of staff, Eliezer? Legally, I can do that. I can make him my son. And that way, I can take Eliezer's sons as my, my grandchildren, and then you'll be able to keep your promise. God said that was very nice of you, very thankful, very, very considerate of you, but I don't need your help. I'm going to keep my own promise. So Abraham responded with boldness, with chutzpah. Well, oh, really? Okay, Lord, well, how about, I just happen to have this contract in my pocket. How about you signing it so I can be sure? Well, they entered into a covenant. And, of course, the thing that was unusual about that covenant, whereas two contracting parties were to walk through the middle of the pieces of this covenant, this time, after the, the, the sacrifice was prepared, Abraham was dozing off, and he awakened just enough in his slumber to see the pillar of flame and pillar of cloud, the Shekinah, the glory of God, going through and, and signing this covenant unilaterally. So what does that mean? Abraham didn't walk through it with God. God walked through it and said, this is an unconditional promise. I'm going to give your heirs this land from the great river in Egypt, the Nile, all the way over to the Euphrates River. 
So that has not happened yet. It has never happened yet. Even in the days of Solomon, that has not been completed. Uh, Dr. D, uh, 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 Dr. McGee, if you listen to through the, through the Bible radio, Dr. McGee is one of my favorite commentators through the years. Uh, Dr. McGee estimates that only about 10% of the actual amount of land that God promised Israel has actually been inhabited by Israel. So either God is incapable of keeping His promises or that promise hasn't been kept yet. And in that same chapter, in chapter 15, God foretold Abraham that his heirs were going to go into a strange land for 400 years. Of course, we know the story of, of, of uh, Joseph. We know what happened where, where, where uh, Jacob and 70 total Jews went into Egypt. And they were there for near 400 years. And they came out a mighty army. You remember, miraculously, Moses led them out. And as they were approaching the promised land, the first stop was at Mount Sinai. So about two months after coming out of Egypt, they were at the base of Mount Sinai. They were there for almost a year, actually 11 months. They were camped around Mount Sinai. And that's when Moses went up and down and received the law. And God gave them all the instructions, including the building design for the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness. Then they went on to Kadesh Barnea. But while they were at, Le- at, at Mount Sinai, the book of Leviticus was given. And notice this promise. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. And you shall eat your bread in full and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land and you shall be able to lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land. Neither shall the sword go through your land. And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Folks, that has always been the goal. From Genesis 1, that was God's dream. It was here, and it will be completed with the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. We will forever be God's people, and He will forever be our God, and we will exist for eternity in a sinless, which I cannot even begin to imagine, but a sinless existence. In fact, Dr. John Morris, who was the son of the great Henry Morris, the Bible or the biblical scientist and, and commentator, John Morris used to come and speak at our Reclaiming Oklahoma for, for Christ events. And he theorized, and quite frankly, I'd never considered it before, but I think he's probably right. He theorized that all of the cosmos will actually be usable at some point in time. God didn't just create all of these planets and solar systems and galaxies just to have something to look at at night. He theorizes, he and his dad, that it's going to all be usable at some point. So, you know, when you consider the entirety of believers throughout all time uh, in, in perfect glorified bodies that can travel at the speed of thought, it's uh, heavens. I can't even imagine what, what that existence will be like when we are not bound by three dimensions and we have access to the entirety of the cosmos. Anyway, that's enough of a, a chase down that rabbit tail. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, okay, uh, I will give peace. So that's an if. Notice the ifs. If you do it my way, I will bless you. Now, notice the other side. If you will not hearken unto me, I will not do all these commandments, but, I, but you shall despise my statutes or, or, or your soul abhors my judgments so that you will not do all my commandments, that you break my covenant. I also then will do this to you. I will even appoint over you terror 
and I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies. And they that hate you shall reign over you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy, and I will scatter you among the Gentile nations, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. So this was 39 years before they entered the promised land. God laid down the law literally. If you do it my way, I'll bless you. If you don't do it my way, I will curse you. Of course, we know that after those 40 years in the wilderness, uh, after two years there, uh, they got to Kadesh Barnea. They sent the spies into the promised land. They voted 10 to 2 that they couldn't trust God to deliver. So God said, I've had enough of you. They wandered for 40 years. Then Joshua led them into the promised land. Coincidentally, Joshua's name, we would translate that Jesus And Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, chased out 10 Gentile kings over a period of seven years. So we see a type of of tribulation period uh, uh, carried out by Joshua the first time they occupied the promised land. So Israel was set right there. In the middle of the Gentile world, they were to be a kingdom of priests, and they were there as a light to the Gentiles, to draw the entire world through them to the one true living God. But sadly, which is emphasized the irony of all this, the sad irony, while all these other countries had their own gods that they made with their own hands and put on a mantle, and these gods couldn't walk from point A to point B, you would have to carry your own god around because he was incapable of movement. Your god couldn't speak, couldn't do anything. Compare that to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had demonstrated his might and power with the, with the exodus from Egypt. I mean, the Nile River turning to blood. It's kind of a big deal. You know, the, the Red Sea being split in two, and the Jews walking through on dry land, and then destroying the Egyptians. And then God leading them through the wilderness, water coming out of a stone. Uh, God providing manna every morning except the seventh day. And then they were to collect two days' worth of manna on day six to carry them through to the start of the... I mean, God had demonstrated His power, leading them into the promised land. Again, the Jordan River dried up, and they walked through on dry land. Their battle plan for Jericho was to march around the city for seven days, then blow the trumpets, and the walls fell down. I mean, God kind of... I mean that sarcastically. God kind of demonstrated His existence. So the Jews, in spite of all this, they get into the promised land, and as God himself uses the terminology, they began whoring after these false gods, gods that had no breath, gods that could not walk, gods that could not talk. They were worshiping the gods of the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians, and the one true living God was being put on the shelf. Well, God warned them. God sent prophets to call them to repentance They would not. Eventually, God did exactly what He told them He was going to do in Leviticus. He dragged them out of the land. And of course, the books of prophecy tells us that during this time of Gentile domination, that Israel would abide for a long time without a king. But after all of this, the children of Israel will return and will seek Yahweh, their God, and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. So we know there's going to be an extended period of time where they're out of land. There's going to be a longer period of time where they have no king, but another king is coming. 
Now, Daniel chapter 2, we see a picture of this period that's called the, the times of the Gentile. It ends with that last world empire that I think we are on the threshold of seeing. And by the way, it look, there is a great pushback right now. Some of the rioting by farmers over in Europe, is they're winning. Their governments are pushing back against the Great Reset. And again, I don't want to delay the rapture, folks. And quite frankly, I couldn't delay the rapture if I wanted to. But I don't. But here's what I do want. I hope and pray that we will be able to enjoy the blessings of liberty and our kids and our grandkids until the day the rapture comes. I hope there's not a 10-year or 20-year or 50-year period of time in there where my children and grandchildren face the, the, the uh, being beheaded or hung or, or impaled or some cruel treatment just because of their Christianity. So I'm thankful that we're seeing this pushback. But again, Daniel describes this entire period. He said, 70 times 7 years are determined. The judgment upon your people, Daniel, and upon your holy city. That is very clearly Israel and Jerusalem. That is not the church in Washington, D.C. God is going to wrap it all up. That's what we're seeing in Revelation. The tying all the loose ends together. This times of the Gentiles will end at the end of that 70th week of Daniel. Now, Jesus came fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, humbly bringing salvation, riding on a donkey's colt. And Jesus was rejected as we knew what happened. Daniel 9.26 says so. Isaiah 53 says so. Uh, Psalm 22 says so. Um, and, and as Jesus was uh, cresting the top of the Mount of Olives, just as we are here. In fact, that's my wife in front of us. You look down there a little farther down, you see Joshua and Jacob in the orange and blue as little guys down there next to the wall. But this is actually coming down the old Jericho Road from east to west approaching the city of Jerusalem. And you see the eastern gate. You see the golden dome of the rock across the Kidron Valley. Well, Jesus was, had a very similar view, and he wept. And he said that the Jews would fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive in all nations, and Jerusalem should be trodden down to the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, we know that in the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, we see two parts of it. One in chapter, in the, in the book of Luke, uh, Jesus answers the question, when will the temple be destroyed? And in Matthew chapter 24, we see the answer to the question, Lord, when shall be the sign of your return? Now, notice what Jesus says regarding the sign of his return. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. So that's three and a half years into the tribulation. The temple will be rebuilt. Then this super politician that everybody thinks is a good guy will enter the temple, declare that he is God, and demand that he be worshipped under penalty of death. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days be shortened. Folks, there's not a shortened number of days. What that word literally means, if it was translated properly, means to dock. Unless there was a limit on this seven-year period. There will be seven years exactly. A time times the dividing of a time times two. Seven years exactly except there be a limit, except there be an end, except these be docked, these days should be shortened. In other words, they're not going to go on indefinitely. 
if they were to go on indefinitely, then all humanity would be wiped out. Is basically what Jesus is saying here, including the Jewish people. Uh, but except these days have an end, a termination, then there shall no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, elect speaking of Israel there, then these days shall have an end. Now, Jewish eschatology, they're back in the land and they're looking for the Messiah. Again, what's confusing is there's two different Messiahs to be looking for, apparently. There's this one that's humble, bringing salvation. Then there's one that's leading an army as King of kings and Lord of lords. We've got this 70th week of Daniel in between Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 14. So what they don't see is the church age. We see the church age. Uh, They didn't see it because it was hidden in the Old Testament. So this time of the Gentiles will actually end at Armageddon. Now, Charlie Meadows, in fact, I don't know if Charlie's here today or not. Charlie told me about a, a Knesset member that was going to be in, in, in Oklahoma. This was back in 2007. We went to Purcell and met Rabbi Benny Elon. And he was asked a question. Uh, Rabbi, uh, what verse or word or anything would you say gives most evidence that the Bible is true? And Rabbi Benny Elon replied, he said, one word, the Jew. And then he elaborated, the fact that the Jewish nation exists is evidence that the Bible is God's Word. Because you go back and you look, and I like to, to t- I touched on Ezekiel for this example, because Ezekiel is written in chronological order. All of these contemporary world powers are called out in Ezekiel's prophecy. The Ammonites, God says, I'm going to destroy you and you will no longer exist on planet Earth. The Moabites... God says, I'm going to destroy you and you will no longer exist on planet earth. God said to the Edomites, I'm going to destroy you and you will no longer be a nation. God said to Philistia, I'm going to destroy you and you will no longer be a nation. To Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia, God says, I'm going to destroy you and you will no longer be a nation. Egypt was told specifically that they would be taken out of the land for 40 years. Now, folks, that's pretty specific. And then told that they would return to the land, but they would never be a world power. Notice that last sentence. They shall be a base kingdom, a humble, nothing kingdom. Now, if you look at all of those kingdoms on a modern-day map, you would discover that just like God said 2,500 years ago, none of them exist. And just like God said 2,500 years ago, Egypt exists, but they're not a world power. And prior to this, they always had been. What, where was Joseph in captivity? Joseph was in bondage in Egypt, and they were the number one power on planet Earth at that point in time. It was always Egypt and the Assyrians, or Egypt and the Babylonians. Now, nobody cares about Egypt, just exactly as God said would happen. But Israel, Israel would be out of the land for many years. Their bones would be brittle and exceedingly dry. But in the last days, they would stand up like a mighty army, skin would be back on their bodies, but there would be no, it uses the Hebrew word ruach, no spirit in them. So they're standing as a mighty army, but spiritually dead when God reveals himself to them. Folks, I think we saw the beginning of that May the 14th, 1948. Israel is a mighty army. They may be the most powerful army on the planet today. In fact, I'm not even sure ours is even in the top three or four anymore. But they are spiritually dead. They don't know the Lord their God. But they will over the course of these four years. Now, why is there a great tribulation period? Well, three reasons. One is God is going to punish the world. 
Remember those prayers cried out by the saints underneath the altar uh, in, in the uh, fifth seal? How long, O oh Lord? Well, this is long enough. God is going to see uh, every sin accounted for. Notice Isaiah 26, 21 says this, For behold, the Lord, and whenever you see in the KJV, Lord, all in capital, that means the, the tetragrammation, yad Hey vav Hey uh, Yahweh. For the, for the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. So the prayer uh, for justice that those underneath the, the altar were crying out for, that's part of the reason for the tribulation. Notice verse 11 of chapter 13, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Second reason there's a tribulation is to purify Israel. We just described their time at Mount Sinai. They were there for about two years from exiting Egypt until they were at Kadesh Barnea when they sent the 12 spies in to check out the promised land. Of course, the 12 spies came back and voted 10 to 2 with only Caleb and Joshua saying, let's go, we can take these people, God's on our side. The rest of them said, we can't trust God. So at that point, God said, enough. I am finished with your rebellious, stiff-necked heart. And God said, this generation will never see the promises that I made to your forefathers. But your children will. So God's going to keep His promise. It's just not going to be with that faithless generation. As a matter of fact, in Ezekiel 20, it says this, in remembering their time, their 40 years in the wilderness... God says this, remembering the past and looking to the future, which is what we're focusing on now, I will bring you out of the people and will gather you out of all countries wherein ye are scattered, with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there I will plead with you face to face, just as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. And I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Matter of fact, he goes on to add in Zechariah. In fact, I referenced these two verses earlier. I'm glad I have them in here. That it shall come to pass that in the land, saith the Lord, that is in the land of Israel, uh, Haaretz, the land, uh, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, and the third shall be left therein. So that last verse we saw where it says to bring you under the rod, that's where I got the number one and ten. The Jews were pretty crafty. When they would come bring a sacrifice, they would typically choose the tithe that they would give to the Lord as being the most sickly of their flocks. So imagine... Uh, you were going to make a donation to the church. You went and grabbed that old 13-inch black and white television with the rabbit ears that's covered with dust in your attic. You say, oh, here, Lord, I'll give this to you. Well, this method was a way of, of, getting, uh, of, of objectively taking the best for the Lord. They would take, as you're bringing your flock through, the priest would be there with his rod, and he would count ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Rod would come down, the tenth one belongs to me. That might be a straggly-looking sheep, 
or it might be a healthy sheep, but that was one way to guarantee that they couldn't cheat the Lord. But notice the one in ten outside the land in all nations and the one in three inside the land of Israel. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. That's where it's liquefied. The dross rises to the top. Scrape off the dross where it's just pure metal that's left. And they shall call on my name and I will hear them. And I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. Third reason there is going to be a tribulation. Number one, to punish the world. Number two, to purify Israel. The kingdom of heaven on earth is through Israel. That's why these 144,000 are so important. The gospel was supposed to go through the Jews to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would come to the Lord through God's people, God's chosen nation, Israel. That will actually happen during the millennial reign. Uh, And then number three, a nation will be reborn. You know, I've mentioned to you many times as we've studied the tribulation period, how that word trouble, translated trouble, is actually uh, birth pains. And notice this reference, Isaiah 66, 8. Shall the earth to be made to deliver a baby in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in child, was in labor, she brought forth her children. So again, we see the idiom of the birth of a nation with the people of that nation in one day. We see Jeremiah 30, alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is a time even of Jacob's birth pains. But Jacob shall be saved out of those tribulations. Jesus used the same reference in the Olivet Discourse. All these are the beginning of birth pains, beginning of sorrows. And notice how Ezekiel wraps all this up. We think of Israel now, and I just used the reference a moment ago of the the Valley of Dry Bones, where as the prophet said, Israel would stand like a mighty army in the land, standing upright with flesh and skin and sinew, but they had no breath, no spirit in them. Standing alive, but spiritually dead. Now notice the continuation of that promise. I will take you from among the Gentiles and will gather you out of all countries. And I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a a living heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And notice how that ends. What's this last sentence? You shall be my people and I will be your God. Again, that has always been the goal. From Eden, that was God's goal that we would be his people and he would be our God. But God will not force himself on us. The way that we can demonstrate our love for him is obedience. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, then keep my commandments. God has demonstrated his love for us in innumerable ways. When you woke up this morning in good health, able to breathe, able to eat, able to enjoy the blessings that we enjoy every day. That is a demonstration of God's love. But the greatest demonstration of God's love took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus, who didn't have to go, 
went to the cross, took our sins upon him as the Lamb of God, and gave his life to pay the sin debt that we owe. Boy, what a demonstration of love. Well, how can we possibly say, I love you back? Well, by obedience, by submitting to Jesus and crying out to him as Savior. Then by following him as disciples of Christ in everything that we do. He shall be our God, we shall be his people. That is it. It's going to happen. Israel has been spiritually dead, in fact, out of the land for the last 2,000 years. They've been back in the land for the last almost 80 years, but they are spiritually dead. You've got Hasidics, you've got the, um, uh, you've got the ultra-Orthodox, you've got the, the uh, uh, just Reformed Jews that are not very religious at all, just uh, Jews by birthright. It is a, it is, Israel is about as pagan as the United States of America is, if you want an example. You know, this country was built on a love affair with God and a covenant with God, and now look at us. We're, we're, we're exporting LGBT uh, throughout the world. I got to tell you, you know, people talk about uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. I'm not sure there's a more wicked country on the planet today than the United States. And it grieves me to say that. But this country that was birthed with the pilgrims landing in 1620, now we make money that doesn't exist as we just turn on the printing presses, which is stealing from all of you. Inflation is theft. It's an invisible tax. With every dollar they create out of thin air, that means every dollar that you have worked hard and saved has less spending power. So you may look at your, your uh, Merrill Lynch portfolio in a, uh, about four or five years, you go, wow, $10 million, I finally made it, I'm a multimillionaire. Now, we go to the grocery store and we find that that'll last us about one month. So inflation is an invisible tax, but then we take those dollars that they're making out of nothing and we bribe poorer nations with them. Nations that are more conservative in their values than we are. Say, hey, we're going to give you a billion dollars. However, you know, we've noticed you're, you're not very inclusive. You know, we want you to start uh, uh, providing uh, sexual mutilation to your children in case they're gender confused. We want you to legalize abortion. We, we are forcing nations to become more evil, otherwise they don't get our monopoly money. So, boy, there's a lot that this country is, is we, we, are, we call ourselves a Christian nation. Even our currency says, in God we trust, but there's not much evidence in it, right? Okay, now we think of Israel as being God's chosen people, which they are. But Israel right now is not a spiritual people. They're not a God-fearing people, just like us. But they will be. Every promise that God made will be carried out. Israel will be the chief nation over all the nations all the world. It's going to be Israel. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the King of creation, will rule and reign from the throne of his father, David, which is in Jerusalem. That is what we call the millennial reign of Christ. That is what the Jews call the age of the Messiah. The seven years of tribulation is that, that purge, that leads up to Armageddon, which is the establishment of the kingdom. I gave you backdrop today. Next week, we will actually get into chapter 7. We're going to see two groups of people that survive this. You're going to see 144,000 Jews that are like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Somehow or other, God is going to reach this 144,000 just as he did Paul, and they're going to become Jewish Billy Grahams, Jewish Apostle Pauls. 
Then the second half of that, you're going to see a great multitude of martyrs in heaven. That's the result of their ministry. Now, this 144,000 is going to be sealed and protected. So although the Antichrist is going to do everything he can to destroy them, they are going to be protected throughout the tribulation period. Just like the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were, were protected through the midst of the fiery furnace. This group won't escape the tribulation. They'll just be protected from death through the tribulation. And they'll be preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And there will be a great multitude from every nation. The second group of chapter 7 is of every nation, not just Jews, of every nation. And they're going to be martyred standing before the Lord. This is the parenthetical insert. Answers that question taken from Joel 2. That's going to be an awful period of time. Great and terrible day of the Lord. Who shall be able to survive? That's exactly what was quoted by John, Revelation 6, 19. Chapter 7 answers that question. Two groups of people, 144,000 chosen Jews that are evangelists and a great multitude from every kindred, tongue, and people that are going to believe, but their salvation will come with a price. If they're caught, unless they recant and accept the mark, they'll be executed. So we'll get into that next week. Hope you enjoyed our study. I hope you're enjoying the study of Revelation. We're not racing through it, but uh, hopefully you're getting some things from a Jewish perspective that you've probably never gotten before uh, if you've ever gone through uh, a study through Revelation.